Good morning. Welcome to Wayward Part 3. Wayward is the name of our series that we're in on the book of Hosea. And we started it with part one last week. In fact, we always start with part one. We try to be not confusing around here. So two weeks ago, we did Wayward Part 1. And in that sermon, we covered um, Hosea, pretty much Hosea chapter 1. And then last week, we did Wayward Part 2, and we covered Hosea chapter 2. And today, we are doing Wayward Part 3. And unsurprisingly, we are going to cover Hosea chapter 3. It is a short uh, chapter. It's only going to be five verses that I'm going to read to you. um, And it's a doozy. So um, I'll let you know. There's a... There's a pastor named James Boyce, uh, he's passed on now, but uh, his name was James Boyce, and he was the pastor of an influential church called 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And when he preached on Hosea chapter 3, he titled his sermon, The Greatest Chapter in the Bible. And I think it's because one of the most significant pictures of our relationship to God in the Bible is in Hosea chapter 3. Um, and so I think the result will be this, once you learn it, when we are done today, there will be Perhaps some of you who will walk out of here going like, gosh, that was so graphic. I'm really glad he doesn't normally preach like that. And I think there will be others of you that will walk out of here today and go, oh, I get it. Like the gospel is such a big deal and I get it in a way that I haven't ever gotten it before. And so the text is Hosea chapter three, verses one through five, which is the whole chapter. I'm gonna read them to you. In fact, before I do, let me review just a little bit first because I think Hosea chapter three doesn't make as much sense as it could if you don't know the two chapters that come before it. So let me just real quick review. Hosea is the prophet of God in Israel. He marries an adulterous wife because God tells him to. Hosea chapter one, verse two said, go and marry, this is the Lord speaking, go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So he marries this adulterous woman named Gomer and um, he has children with her. Uh, We talked about two weeks ago when we learned chapter one that one or two of the children, some people think maybe aren't even his. Um, And she is compared in that chapter and in all these chapters, she is compared to Israel. This is a prophecy about how Israel is cheating on God with other deities. That as the nation of Israel is turning their back on God and cheating on God, worshiping other gods, Um, this is the prophecy that's given to them, that as Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea over and over again, they're supposed to look over and see that and go, whoa, what a tragedy, and then go, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing to God all the time. Then you get to chapter two, which we covered last week. In chapter two, we see um, Gomer gets, it seems she gets involved in something sort of like prostitution. Um, It's hard to tell for sure, because as I told you last week, um, chapter two of Hosea is written to Israel. Okay, it's God giving a prophecy to Israel. But Israel is being compared to Gomer, this adulterous woman. So the the imagery that's used about this unfaithful woman in chapter two would have to apply to Gomer for it to make sense and apply to Israel. So when you get to chapter two, you see in verse five, it says, she acted shamefully. She thought I will go after my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, wool and flax, oil and drink. And so you can see there's this reference to like prostitution. I am, I am, I am, cheating on my husband with other people for money, right? Now, Israel is the one that's being referred to here, but it's being compared to someone else, Gomer. You see the same thing in verse 12 of last week's chapter. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. That's speaking to Israel, but it's comparing it to uh, Gomer. So we see something like prostitution going on here as a part of the unfaithfulness. And then by the time we get to chapter three, we see that uh, Gomer is now owned by someone, okay? At least it seems to me that this is Gomer. This is the one woman that's been in this passage the whole time. By the time we get to chapter three, she is, the, the wife that's being referred to in this passage that Hosea is dealing with is 
owned by someone. So she gets, we don't know like much more than that. Like there are not a whole lot of details. It's a short passage. It doesn't tell us the background of the story. It doesn't tell us any of the details as to how the story got to the point that it's at. But obviously she has some sort of debt to pay off and she is some kind of slave because she's owned, okay? She's a slave and I'm gonna assume it's probably something like sex slavery because of all of the sexual imagery in chapter one and chapter two. So maybe she's a temple prostitute, don't know for sure. But, but without knowing the details, all we know is she is owned by someone and but when you get to chapter three, the beginning of it, she is purchasable. And so now I will read to you Hosea chapter three. It says this, then the Lord said to me, Go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. I'll explain raisin cakes later. (laughs) So I bought her for for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. And I said to her, you must live with me many days. Don't be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you. For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So let me summarize what you just heard. It looks to me like Hosea is buying back his unfaithful wife to show that God loves Israel despite their unfaithfulness. Now, I admit this passage does not say Gomer. It just says, go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man. But to do that again, seems to me that we'd be referring to the same woman who was referred to as promiscuous back in chapter one. Um, So even though it doesn't say her name, it's a a wife, it's someone that he buys to live with him. And um, the only adulterous woman in the story is Gomer. Also, when we look at the analogy between the two, it doesn't seem to me that this could be some other like second woman that he is marrying because the whole point is this is God and Israel, right? Israel's not getting replaced as a second wife or like as a second nation that God loves. So as best as I can tell, this is Hosea who probably already paid a dowry when he married her the first time, buying her back. Again, and this relationship is supposed to illustrate how God is going to accept Israel, even though he takes things away from her for a time, and we'll see that in verse four. But there is eventually, at verse five, the end of the chapter, just like the other two chapters ended, there's a total restoration. So what I'd like to do in explaining this chapter, I'd like to explain two things like historically or culturally, maybe is a better word for it. Two things that happen in this passage that are very different than like the world that we live in. And so as you read it, you go, I don't know, what is that about? That doesn't make any sense. That's not how we do it here in America. So I want to explain two things that are very different from this period of history and from this culture that's so different than ours so that we can make sense of the passage. And then after that, I'd like to show you a chart, a chart that we made that's going to show you like the connections between Homer and, and sorry, Hosea and Gomer's relationship. There's no Homer in here. (laughs) Um, Jose and Gomer's relationship and how it relates to God and his people. But before we look at the chart, I want to talk about the two things that are just like, what? What is that about? That's not how we do it. And so the first one is raisin cakes, found in verse one. So if you look at the first verse, he's supposed to show love to a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress just as, now here's the analogy. Why are you doing this? Because I want everyone to see this is the kind of love I have for my people, right? Just as the Lord loves the Israelites and he loves them despite the fact that they've done wrong things, Right? It's the way the Lord loves the Israelites, though they, now what do they do? They turn to other gods. Let's pause there. Well, that makes sense. 
The fact that God would love them despite the fact that they're turning to other gods, we would go, well, of course, turning to other gods is a sin. I would imagine that that's wrong. I could see why God would be displeased that his people are turning to other gods. What's weird is the rest of the sentence. They turn to other gods and, and they love raisin cakes. Why? That's weird. Why is that in there? I would bet that none of you in this room would have listed raisin cakes as sinful before today, right? Like if I had said to you, I want you to list out sinful things, okay? Just write as many sins as you can think of, right? On a piece of paper. I would imagine you'd go, okay, you'd probably start murder. I assume that's the, probably the first one we'd write down, murder. And then you'd write stealing and lying and you keep writing. And I go, no, keep going. And maybe you got like 15 sins. And I'm like, no, no, there's gotta be more sins than that. Keep writing, keep writing. And you're like, okay. And you're just scraping the bottom of the barrel. Now you're going, oh, gossip, cheating on your taxes, being rude in the hallway, okay, and you're just writing, and I go, no, no, keep, just say everything you can think of. I bet you, no matter, even if you got to 100, I can't imagine anybody in this room would have been like, raisin cakes. <laughs> totally forgot about that one, right? Why, why is this in here and treated like such a big deal? They turn to other gods and they love raisin cakes. And so this is my guess. First of all, I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't even know what the recipe was for these raisin cakes. But the way it's used in the passage, you can tell it must be an emblem. It must mean more than cake. It has to be an emblem of spiritual adultery. I do not think, it does not match it with the rest of the Bible, to think that God was upset about a particular cake recipe that they were using, right? Like, well, apples is fine, you know, but raisins, that's over the line. No, that's not, can't be what it is. It must be that this was an emblem of spiritual unfaithfulness in that culture. And how that became the emblem, I do not know. It could be that raisin cakes were used in the worship of the false gods, right? The worship of the Baals, maybe it involved raisin cakes, and that's the way that became the symbol. But it was an emblem of spiritual adultery, had to be. Um, and before you go, well, that's weird. Why do they got to do that stuff? Why can't they just say what they mean? And you got to have emblems and symbols in the Bible. Just so you know, like we do the same thing. We talk like this too. There are certain... Uh, objects in our language that when we say it, we don't literally mean that object. We refer the thing that it's a symbol or an emblem of. I just heard one this past week. I was hanging out with a friend of mine. He was talking about his daughter and how she works for FEMA. And he said, whenever there's a, like a hurricane or some sort of disaster, like they are there the next day, boots on the ground. And that's the phrase he used, boots on the ground, which I've heard before. Have you heard this phrase? Right. What does it mean? A lot of times it's used with military intervention. They'll say, we can't just send in planes and missiles and stuff. We got to have boots on the ground if we're going to handle this issue, okay? Well, what do we mean by that? Well, the word boot there is being used as an emblem, isn't it? No one means that literally. I can't imagine anyone that hears that phrase. Even newscasters and stuff say it, right? They're out of boots on the ground. No one thinks that what that means is someone got a pair of boots and they walk out to the situation and put the boots on the ground and problem solved. I told you boots on the ground would fix this. No, that in that case, boots on the ground is an emblem that means what? Direct human intervention. Well, why don't they just say that? I don't know, but they use boot as the symbol. And so here we are. Israel is turning from God. She turns to other gods and she loves raisin cakes. There's some sort of um, emblem of spiritual adultery going on here. All right, number two, and this would be something that's different from our culture as well. It's the beginning of verse two. Verse two begins with these words. So I bought her. So I, bought, I loved her, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. We do not buy and sell people in our culture, right? So we are not familiar with this. But I think what's going on here in this verse between Hosea and Gomer, I think the thing that you would call this is redemption, okay? Redemption is the name for what's going on here. And redemption is a word that means something, I think, very specific 
And a lot of times, I don't think we even know what the word redemption means, even though in our culture, we use the word redemption sometimes. We'll say so-and-so redeemed themselves. And usually it's some sort of moral or ethical or spiritual thing. We think of the word redemption or redeemed or redeemer. We think of these as like spiritual religious words, okay? In fact, my kids go to a school called Redeemer Christian School, right? And we think of it as this, this um, very Christian religious thing, Redeemer. And it is, there's a sense in which it is. But at, at this point, I think you could, be, you could be someone who doesn't even know God and you would understand what redemption was. Redemption wasn't a spiritual thing, really, at this point. It was a financial thing. When someone redeemed someone, there was, this was an exchange of goods, right? I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. And so for you to see what this looked like, like in their culture, I want to just show you something from Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 47. There's multiple uh, places in the Bible that talk about redemption, but this is one of them. I think it's a really helpful one. So Leviticus 25, starting in verse 47. If a foreigner or temporary resident living among you prospers, but your brother living near him becomes destitute and sells himself to the foreigner living among you or to a member of the foreigner's clan. He has the right of, what's the word? Redemption. Now, nothing churchy is happening at this point, though. He has the right of redemption after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him. There's the verb form. His uncle or cousin may redeem him or any of his close relatives from his clan may redeem him. And if he prospers, he may redeem himself. And then the rest of the passage goes on to explain how to figure out the purchase price of redemption. What's going on here? It's a financial transaction, right? He's saying what could happen in this culture, apparently, is you could have a person who falls into poverty and it's a really bad situation and they're really hungry. And so they take out the last bit of food they have and they eat it. And then some more days go by and they're hungry again and they have no more food. But they have some stuff in their house and so they sell their stuff in order to, so their family doesn't starve to death. And then they're out of food again, and so they sell some more stuff, and eventually they sell all the stuff. And so now they are hungry, and they have no food, and they have no things. So what do you do? And I think what could happen in that culture is there is someone that would then present themselves to someone who's doing well financially and say, hey, I will sell to you the last thing I have, me. Like, I will become your slave, and I will sell myself to you in exchange, you make it to where I'm not homeless, and I'm not going to starve to death. If you'll prevent me from starving to death, I'll give you me. And so apparently that could have happened in that situation. Now, that person could then be redeemed. What does that mean? It seems to me what this passage is saying is that dude who sold himself relatives, his brother, his cousins, his uncles, at some point could get together, pass the hat around, gather up enough money, and what they should do if they could do, and if they're good family members, is they're going to go down to the person who purchased their brother or their cousin or their nephew, whoever it was, and they're going to say, I redeem him. I pay the price. I buy him from you. Why? Well, I think the passage is pretty clear. You're not buying him so he'll be your slave. You're buying him so he'll be nobody's slave and he'll be back restored to the family again. You see that? That's what I think is happening with Hosea chapter three. When you get to verse two and it says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. He's, he's not buying her um, to be his slave, right? The verse just before that said, go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man, Right? The whole point of him buying her is to show her love. What is he doing? He's redeeming her. He's buying her out of that situation and back into his family. That's what's happening here. It's not necessarily a religious thing. It's a financial thing. I'm going to get her out of there. I'm going to pay the price, whatever it costs. 
Now, one more thing I think that's important to remember is that this is what Jesus has done for us. And I want to show you in the New Testament how the reason why a lot of times we think of redemption as a religious thing is because it's what Jesus has done for us. And we need to see that connection there, especially because I'm going to refer to it later in the sermon. So I want you to have seen it in the Bible. So this is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Just two verses, but I want you to see how this is the relationship between Jesus and us. Galatians 4, verse 4. When the time came to completion, God sent his son born of a woman. So this is describing something we celebrate at what holiday? Christmas, right? So God sent his son, born of a woman. So we got, we're kind of picturing, okay, Christmas. So God sent his son, born of a woman. He was born under the law, right? He, all the ethical things required of us, required of him, maybe even more so in his culture. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, for what purpose? This is important. God sent his son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I think sometimes we read verses like this and we don't know what the word redeem actually means. And so we think that, well, that's great. You know, God sent his son to redeem us. Redeem means something like, you know, love, be nice to, smile at. You know, no. The time came, he sent his son born of a woman to buy, to purchase those under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. Not, not as a slave, to, to buy out their contract, right? To pay the price so that they will not be slaves anymore, but they will be welcomed into the family. That's redemption. That's what's meant by this word. Jesus purchased, paid the purchase price for us so that we'd be in his family. Now, it's important to understand as we now move forward. So what I want to do now is, and I'm fairly excited about this, um, there's a chart that we made. And this chart I think is going to help explain Hosea chapter three because there's five verses in there and I haven't really explained verses three, four, and five yet. So I'm gonna explain Hosea chapter three verses one through five by going through this chart and then we're also gonna be able to see how this connects to what is talked about in the New Testament regarding these topics. So if I can get my chart up now, here we go. So the first column, I wanna talk about the prophet and his wife, Hosea and Gomer. What is happening in this story? What's the plot line? Who's the lover? What action did he do? Who is the beloved person? And then the result of that, what was the short-term relationship like between them and what was the long-term one? And then I also wanna look at not just the prophet and his wife, but also God and his people. And I wanna look at God and his people in two different ways, the Old Testament sense and the New Testament sense. The Old Testament sense, because that's what Hosea is talking about, okay? Yahweh, that's the name of the God here in the Old Testament. It could also be translated Jehovah. It could also be translated the Lord, okay, which is what HCSB does with it. But this God, the Lord, and Israel, and there is a direct connection between God and his people in the Old Testament, Hosea and Gomer. The passage actually makes the connections for us. We don't have to really guess. And then I want to talk about God and his people through the lens of the New Testament, Jesus and his church, how do all of these things that we see in the Old Testament, how do they apply to us in this room? So we're going to go one column at a time. Let's start with the prophet and his wife and put the first column up. So as we're looking at Hosea chapter 3, this is what we see. First of all, the lover is Hosea. When it comes to the situation between Hosea and his wife, the lover is Hosea. He's the one that God says, go and love, go again and love a woman who's loved by another man. What does Hosea do to show the love? We've already covered this in verse 2. He buys her right? He spends the redemption money, buys her. This might be a second time he spent money to get her to be his wife. Hosea buys. Who does he buy? His wife. Like I said, it doesn't specifically say Gomer, but I don't, I can't think she's the only adulterous woman in this passage. I can't see any reason why it would be anyone other than her. Just like God redeems Israel, so Hosea buys, I think, the same wife all over again. Now, Hosea buys his wife, and we saw that in verse 2, and then what happens? What's the result? What's their, relational, what's their relationship like as the result of Hosea purchasing his wife out of whatever situation she'd gotten herself into, and he gets her out of there? So the short-term relationship is that he lives with her, 
And then I don't know if you can read this from back there, but I wrote, with abstinence, question mark. And the reason I wrote that is because I'm not sure, okay? He lives with her, possibly, with abstinence, but possibly not. And so we're gonna look at verse, chapter three, verse three, and I'm gonna talk to you about a section that is really hard to like translate and interpret. And when I say it's really hard, I don't mean like I was too lazy to research it. I mean, when you look into it, you will see that scholars have a really hard time figuring out what Hosea meant with this passage right here in the original language. So here's the verse. And this comes right after I bought her for shekels and barley. Okay, I bought her and then I said to her, now that she is now mine, I got her out of that situation and I said to her, you must live with me many days. I don't know how many days, some period of time, okay? You're gonna live with me. So that's the first thing. When we look at the situation between Jose and Gomer, what happens once he redeems her? The answer is the marriage is at least somewhat restored. He's living with her again, right? You're gonna live with me. And then he says to her, don't be promiscuous or belong to any man and I will act the same way toward you. Essentially in the Hebrew, it's, hey, I don't want you sleeping with anybody and neither will I. Now here's the thing that's interesting. What does that mean? And there's basically two ways that you can interpret it. And like I said, scholars have a really hard time figuring out which one is meant. It could be that he's saying, you don't sleep with anybody and I won't sleep with anybody. What that means is, um, you don't sleep with anybody else other than me, right? And I won't sleep with anybody else other than you. Like you, you were being unfaithful to me, but now, second time around, let's have a reset. You now be faithful to me and I'll be faithful to you. You don't go sleep with anybody else. I'm not gonna sleep with anybody else, right? And if that's what he's saying there, then, whoa, lost my Bible. Good thing I have a real one. All right, so when he says, don't be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you, one way that he could mean that is simply just saying, you be faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you, okay? In that sense, he would just be suggesting um, like ordinary marriage, like monogamy, the kind of marriage just God wants people to have. You don't sleep with anybody, I don't sleep with anybody, which of course would be a big change for her, but he would just be suggesting normal marriage, okay? You don't sleep with anybody, I don't sleep with anybody. The other option is that what's meant in the original Hebrew is literally you don't sleep with anybody and I won't sleep with anybody, right? You don't sleep with anybody, including me, and I will not sleep with anybody, including you, that there would be a period of abstinence in this household for many days, okay? Which, how many days is that? I don't know, some period of time. So it can go both ways. Maybe he's suggesting regular marriage. Maybe he's suggesting a period of, time of abstinence in marriage. I actually lean toward thinking it's probably, I, I, I put a question mark on that chart because I'm admitting I don't know for sure. But I think it probably is with abstinence because, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is this, is, this is the way they're supposed to live toward each other for many days. It's kind of hard for you to imagine that he would say, now don't be promiscuous for many days. And then once the many days is over, eh, go for it. No, I think he's saying there's going to be a period of many days where nothing happens between us. And then after that period of days, we're going to come together again like a, like a husband and wife. Also can see that there's probably a lot, uh, I mean, can you imagine the situation of buying someone out of whatever the situation was in? Like there's probably a lot of, like there's a lot to unpack with this relationship. They maybe needed a little bit of time to focus on some other stuff. And so I think that's probably what's going on. It also matches the analogy with Israel a lot better. So it looks like that's what's happening is there's gonna be a period of time where we don't do anything and then we come together again. I think that's what's being said there. So if you go back to the chart, you'll see. Hosea buys his wife, he lives with her for sure, with abstinence maybe, and then the long-term relationship is one day the relationship is fully restored. And if you notice, I put a question mark there because we don't know if that's actually how it ended. It seems to me that one day the relationship being fully restored, I think, is what Hosea is offering to Gomer. We don't know if she accepted it or not. What's interesting about the story in Hosea is the story of Hosea and Gomer, this whole plot line of the story pretty much exists only for the first three chapters. 
After that, it's all God and Israel for the rest of the book of Hosea. But the story of Hosea and Gomer, which is just the first three chapters, ends here in chapter three, and it ends unfinished. The Hosea, so she cheats on him, and then he goes, finds her, and then he purchases her back, and he says, you can live with me for many days, right? And then that's that. That's where the story ends. Does she repent? Does she go back? Is she restored? Does she leave again and go cheat on him some more? We don't know, because the story ends unfinished with the offer that Hosea gives her once he redeems her. All right, so the next column is God and his people. Now, this is from the same chapter. And this is the, all of these things are equivalent because the, the passage makes them equivalent. Like the Lord says, go and show love to a woman who's loved by another man, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. So when it comes to God and his people, the lover is God. We already talked about Yahweh, the Lord. The action that he takes in this passage is loves, right? The beloved is Israel, right? That's all available from that first verse. So what does he do? Like what is the Lord's relation? When he chooses to love Israel, what happens? Short-term relationship is that he loves her, but sends her into exile, which sort of matches with this with abstinence thing. That is, I'm with you, but there's still something that's not totally restored. It's not totally right yet. I love you, but he sends her into exile. We know that he sends her into exile, but we know that Israel, who has been unfaithful to um, uh, Yahweh for a long time, is, when I say in Israel, I mean the Assyrians come and conquer them and they're taken off to another country, and they lose all their stuff. They lose their nation. They're not a nation anymore. They're, they're a conquered nation. And so we know that happens. We know that that's what was prophesied back in Hosea chapter 1, when on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. We knew that this was prophesied. We know historically that's what happened. Assyria came in and conquered Israel shortly after this. And we can see that that's what's being referred to in verse 4. So if you can go back to verse 4. Now keep in mind, this is... Uh, Hosea and Gomer, and he says, for many days, right? You not be with anybody, I don't be with anybody. And then here's the next verse. For the Israelites must live many days, same phrase. There's gonna be a period of time that the Israelites have to live, and what are they gonna be without? Without what? Without king or prince. Even though the Lord loves Israel, there is still gonna come a day, actually many days, where they live without king or prince without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. I think that's referring to the period of, of time where Assyria conquers them and they are in exile. And that list of things they live without for a period of many, actually turns out to be years. Um, some of those things are good and some of those things are bad, at least it seems to me. Household idols, that's bad, okay? Sacred pillar, bad. But sacrifice, they're supposed to do sacrifices to the Lord. And ephod was what the high priest was supposed to wear, right? And they had kings and princes. I think they'd rather have kings rather than some other country being the king over them. And so good and bad things all get wiped out when they are conquered. Sure, they don't have time to be worshiping you know, other gods maybe, but now they've got nothing. Now, they've been, now that they're in exile, they don't have a king. The king of Assyria, that's their king. And they don't have sacrifices. They can't go to the temple and have the priests do sacrifices on their behalf. They can't worship God the way they used to. They can't do the day of the atonement and the high priest and he does, you know, he does the sacrifice in order to take care of the sins of the people. Like all that's done. The temple's destroyed. No more high priest. No more king. All done with all that for many days. But it doesn't last forever. Eventually Israel is restored. And so we see this predicted in verse five. Afterward, after this period of exile, the people of Israel will return, right? They will return in the sense they will come back to their land and reset up their nation, but also they will return and seek the Lord their God. They will repent. 
right? In the midst of this situation, as, as things are, are, I love them, but things are not totally right between us, they will repent. And they will seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king, and they will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So if we can go back to the chart, we see that God loves Israel. He loves her, but sends her into exile. But one day she is brought back to the Lord and his goodness in chapter three, verse five. So that's the story of Hosea 3. Now I want you to see how all this is connected to what we see in the New Testament about Jesus and us. So the lover in the New Testament would be God or Jesus. I put them both there because that's how these passages work. If you look at Galatians 4.4, it says God sent his son to redeem us. Ephesians 5.25 says um, Christ gave up his life for the church. So we see Jesus as the one who is the lover. What is the action that he does? He redeems, right? Ephesians says he gives up his life. Galatians says he redeems the church. So who does he redeem? The church. And this is important. The church here does not mean this building. It means the Christians, the people who believe in Jesus. Jesus redeems them. And then what is the result of that? The result of that is that he is with her, but sort of not with her. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus, because he has redeemed us, he is with us, but sort of not with us. You might go, what does that mean? What do you mean? Well, I mean, he's with us. Like Jesus is with us. He's ours, right? We are not without Jesus. And I think we see that in the New Testament that we are not without him. In the Great Commission, it says, right after it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus says, and I will be with you to the end of the age. Uh, Multiple places in the New Testament, Paul's letters in particular talk about like Christ being in us. There's a section in Philippians where he's talking about how content he is. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who's the him there, right? This is Jesus. This is God. So he's saying, God is with me. He's in me. He's there with me. I'm not alone. He's helping me to do what I need to do. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is with us. But there's a sense in which he's sort of not with us. Is that correct? You might go, what do you mean he's not with us? I mean... He's literally not here, right? Like the Bible says that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven right now. He's not here, he's there. In fact, there is a significant event that is still to come according to the Bible. And it's called, anybody know what it's called? Right, the second coming. So if there's a second coming where Jesus comes again, what does that imply? That he's not here now, right? If we're waiting for the second coming, then that means he's not here, but one day he's going to come here, and once the second coming happens, he's here, which means he's not here. So there is a sense in which Jesus is with us, and there's a sense in which he is not fully with us. We're still waiting on that. But what is the long-term relationship between us and Jesus because he's redeemed us? And the answer is, well, one day we'll be united forever. He'll be fully with us. And you can see how this matches all of the other things that are revealed in the Bible. I think it's important for you to be able to see this. I think it's helpful to be able to see it all together like this in lines. But the thing that I think is, I really wanted you to get in this sermon is the fact that what Jesus has done for us is the same thing that Hosea did to his wife. Like we use the word redeem so much that it's, I just don't even think we realize. I want you to realize when we say Jesus redeems the church, we're saying he bought us. Just like Hosea went into this person who had rejected him and had been unfaithful to him and didn't deserve it at all and had gotten into this situation where they were purchasable. And Hosea looks at her and says, I'll take her, right? He bought her. And I just want you to realize that's what the New Testament says Jesus did. He bought us even though we were sinners. I think it's so important that we get that with redeems because here's the thing. This, This chapter in Hosea 
it, um, it explains these two columns, right? The, the five verses are explained with these two columns. And then I take the New Testament and show you all of the same connections here. Here's the New Testament part. But here's what's interesting with us in our culture. It seems to me, so, so this is Hosea, this is what it corresponds to, and I would guess, because I know a lot of you, I would guess that most of the people in this room are fairly familiar with this column, and up until today, we're fairly unfamiliar with these two columns. We would say, yeah, I've heard this before. I've heard preachers say this stuff before. I didn't know anything about Hosea and Gomer until this series. In fact, even in the midst of this series, there might be a lot of you that go, I actually don't know almost anything about the Assyrian captivity and the exile and what happened when Assyria took over Israel. I, don't, I still really don't even know all that happened there. We're not familiar with this, but we're very familiar with this column. And that's fine. And I would say in a lot of ways, this is the most important column. But I think there's an issue when we only understand this and we're missing these images from the Old Testament. If we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way, but, but in a way where we do not understand how it is connected to the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament. If we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we do not understand how it is connected to the way that God spoke about human sinfulness for all of history up until the time of Jesus, then we won't understand a full picture of the gospel. The gospel is important, but it, it's built on the foundation of some other stuff. God had said a lot of other things up to that point that help us understand his relationship and ours and what he thinks about sin and what his relationship is to us because of our sin. And when the gospel comes along, we're going to have a fuller picture of it if we understand what God has said all along about himself and our sins. And so when you just have this column, I think it's important for you to get, there are people, I think, in our culture who act like the gospel is a cute little love story between God and us. And it's not. Our unfaithfulness to God is tragic. Like if it were a movie, it's not a comedy, right? It's a tragedy. Our unfaithfulness to God is, tra is tragic and his rescue of us is unfathomable. And I think one way that you can picture this is by imagining Gomer's response in this situation. One pastor that I was listening to his sermon, he, he was kind of picturing it from Gomer's perspective. And I was like, oh, if we could picture this from Gomer's perspective, we would realize what it is that Jesus has done for us. So just go back like 2,500 years and imagine it. Like you imagine you're her. I know we don't know a lot of the details. We don't know who owned her. We don't know if this is what this is. But she's in some sort of situation where she's worth 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. She's stuck in something. And there she is in whatever situation she's in. And there's two guys haggling over her price. And as she hears the people discussing her price, she looks up and sees, it's her husband. Of all people, it's her husband. And what would she say? I think she'd look over at him and go, Hosea, what are you doing here? I haven't seen you in forever. I didn't tell you I was here, right? What are you doing here? Why would you buy me back? Like, of all the people in the whole world, how could you still love me after what I've done to you? That's our story with God. I realize that nowadays, the gospel that people want to hear is that God loves you because you are so special and downright adorable. 
And God couldn't bear to spend eternity without your awesome faith. But that's not the right angle. It's not the way God presents himself, and it's not the way God presents the problem of human sin. Hosea helps us to see redemption differently. Spiritually speaking, you are the prostitute. I am too. All of us are. Like we are the enslaved cheaters on God. And if you don't think the New Testament uses this kind of imagery, see Romans chapter 6 verse 19 and James chapter 4 verse 4. Spiritually speaking, this is so important for you to get, you are the prostitute who cheated on God over and over and over and over again until you got so caught up with your pimp that you were permanently trapped and doomed. And then Jesus paid the price at that point on the cross with his life and bought you back to rescue you. Whoa, that is so graphic. Don't you think that's kind of an exaggeration, Mario? If anything, it's an understatement. But I think it's as close as we can get to comparing our spiritual lives to human situations that we can imagine. You gotta remember, God is holier than Hosea. So our sin must offend God more than our sin would offend a fellow sinner. And so this analogy, I think, is as close as we can get to seeing this from God's point of view. We're the one in slavery. And he showed up and said, I'll pay. And that is why God's love for us is such a big deal. Because when we were unfaithful, He was faithful. Let's pray. God, this is a really graphic story, and you can't, it just just seems to be like there's no way we can read it and then come up with this cutesy little stuff about how God's there for us in our troubles. Like, no, it's, I mean, yes, of course that's true, but it's bigger than that. I remember hearing some pastor or Christian at some point years ago saying something like, we are much more sinful than we think we are and God is so much better and more loving than we thought he was. And I think that's generally true, probably most of us in this room. And so I just asked for a miracle this morning. I've already asked you this a couple times this morning, but I just, I ask that supernaturally you would be the one that teaches us this morning like that, that this truth about you would go into our hearts and into our minds and that it would be um, like deeply in us and effective in bringing about what you want. We thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.